limits on console games. It really sucks that we can't crack that code this many years into the 21st century. You know, that is a strange thing, now that you mention it, because, yeah, I'm very used to mods being a PC thing, and I've just always kind of taken for granted that they are not something that has ever been available on consoles, but... Uh, you know what, um, since I'm about to get into some real, real dork shit for a second here, we may as well admit that we're recording the Big Bang Theory Theory. Hi, I'm Nick. Hi, I'm Kyle, and I'm still planning for one of our first bonus content episodes to be an in-depth breakdown of Witcher 3. So, just a reminder that we we will never, this well will never run dry. Uh, this is absolutely true. It's Witcher 3 could just very well become what the entire show will be about if we allow it. Wouldn't but, that be funny if we just had a Witcher 3 podcast? I mean, has there ever been a podcast that revolves entirely around a single game with no set end point in sight? Like, not just around us. Like, I could imagine someone being like, we're going to do, like, two or three episodes about this game. But it's like, no, this is the ongoing, and not a live service game. This is the ongoing right, right, right. Final Fantasy X appreciation podcast where we just talk about how much we love this game for as many years as we have left in us. Kyle, I am going to respond to this, but first I'm going to say, in case, because, I mean, it is very much not obvious, this is technically a show where we talk about the television show, The Big Bang Theory, but there are so many other things that we enjoy more earnestly about nerd culture that we'd rather be talking about any of that. Hey, guess what? That was the premise. And uh, I would very much be into... Yeah, just focusing on nothing but The Witcher. I know there is a podcast that, you know, it started as a joke and they've just committed to the bit. I think you probably, oh, Till Death Do Us Blart is the name, where, you know, every year they do an annual viewing of uh, the film Paul Blart Mall Cop, and they just discuss how how it's been having to rewatch it so many times and how the year and life has shifted their perspective and all that kind of stuff. And that's a two-hour movie. The content we could get out of the... Man, ooh, I could... Kyle, I could do a whole podcast just on the uh, tribe dynamics of Skellige. Ooh, ooh, that would be wonderful. Okay, uh, I mean, I think I think we found our... Suppli- this will be a supplemental podcast to The Big Bang Theory, available only for mid-tier subscribers. Yes. But as for the mods thing, what I was going to say, and that's when it clicked like, oh, God, this is nerdy, is... You know, I think the original model of the PS3 allowed you to install Linux on it. And I think like that would have been the foot in the door for all the the mod perverts to be able to take advantage of that. And then, you know, I guess for cost reasons or whatever, when they released the next model, they removed Linux support and backwards compatibility and all this other stuff. The backwards compatibility broke my heart a little bit, but I also remember my Looking back now, I didn't recognize it at the time, but I can uh, confidently say now my my former far-right libertarian freak roommate was particularly upset about the Linux loss. And I don't know. I also, I I support the freedom to do mods, but I'm like, what exactly was your particular interest in in this Linux on your PS3? Is this, was just this a symbolic thing? You were so against any sorts of rules or restrictions that not being able to put some sort of weird homebrew thing on your PS3 was a, a, a fundamental offense to the, your spirit. <sighs> so I don't know. That's what I blame. You know, they got rid of Linux, we got little mods. Well, no, the way it's always been, I mean, I, I haven't looked into this too deeply, but my understanding is basically any system that would allow you to mod the code of a game, uh, and this goes, this is also, yeah, this is the Linux thing. Basically, any system that would allow you to mod the um com- interface whatever you call that thing the the not the user interface but the underlying code of uh. the of the PlayStation or Xbox would theoretically allow you to do all other sorts of other stuff that you can do on computers that's shady and vaguely illegal like for example just downloading pirated copies of games like the main reason that you don't have the drm crisis with console games that you do with computer games although i feel like we basically solved that at this point i mean it took you know steam and the evils of steam and i'm not saying it's great but i feel like we basically like streamlined support and distribution of on of console of 
computer games enough that there isn't a huge gaming piracy crisis anymore, although I could be wrong about that. But anyway, they're just so terrified that if uh, if people can, you know, access uh, torrents on their PS5, that they're just going to stop play- paying for video games. Well, you know, we're going to get to this friggin' TV show sooner or later, but as far as... Yeah, the... it's fine. Spoiler alert, the episode sucked. It was boring. Yeah, it was pretty whack. You know, here, five-second summary. There's an A plot and a B plot. The A plot, Leonard and Sheldon um, get together. Uh, Sheldon kind of takes the lead, but they hire their... Uh, uh, an, an idol they looked up to as children, the uh, local cable access or cable television, whatever, science professor uh children's show guy who is uh what was his name professor newton or newton or some sort of professor proton professor proton yes yes and so and everyone cheers when he is first introduced because they do in fact hire him and they hire him to do a show uh as if he would present for a bunch of children then he gets to Leonard and Sheldon's apartment, and oh boy, oh boy, everyone's cheering at this guy that I didn't recognize at all. Apparently, it's Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart, yeah, yeah, and so he is pretty great. He's also he's very funny, old. I'm told. Yeah, well, I think the way he's funny in this episode is that, as someone who does not under like you know intentionally does not understand the dynamic of the characters and is not interested in playing along with it, whatever they're doing, and is just like. I'm tired, you know, like, you guys have antics, I am just waiting for the Reaper to take me, so, like, I don't, I don't have time for your shit, and I like that aspect of it, but yeah, it's not, it's not great, and then the B-plot is, uh, even, even less fun, even, it's, oh god, uh, yeah, Raj, uh, asks Bernie and Wallowitz to babysit his precious little pupper, and they're, is suggestion here you know there's some some very bare bones comparison to them taking care of the dog and um taking care of the dog and what it would be like for them to actually have a child to take care of but it doesn't really go anywhere because they're like oh we love each other oh we lost the dog now we don't like each other and blame each other oh we've explored the entire parenting dynamic and then raj finds someone calls him and is like i got your dog and he gets upset at Bernie and Wallowitz, but Bernie is able to turn around on him in a really pretty, pretty shitty way if they were actually good friends of each other. But by by turning it around on Raj, Wallowitz says, "Oh wow, Bernie, you're going to be an excellent mom. I loved that guilt trip," and uh, that's really the whole episode. Uh, and anyway, uh, so back to the piracy crisis. <laughs> I tried so hard to play Vagrant Story a few weeks ago, and I just gave up, Kyle. We, we will talk more about the episode, but I have to let this go. This Oh, the episode, by the way, was called uh, The Proton Resurgence. Again, phoning it in there. But So Vagrant Story came out on the PS1. Hasn't been released on anything else since. So the only way to legally play it is to have a PlayStation 1 disc. And I don't have one of those, and so I fucking stole it. And I, I get the regular old English version, and I get a PlayStation emulator. I'm... I'm popping along through and it's not 100% perfect but it's serviceable it allows me to play this video game uh, which by the way was made by the same people who uh, particularly the same director who, who did Final Fantasy 12 and all the other evilly shit and so um, I wanted to revisit this but I get to this this cutscene a few hours into the game and um, hey guess what the game just doesn't move beyond that point and so I'm like well you know I'm sure there's a way around this this is either just a glitch or a hiccup with the emulation or it's some sort of anti-piracy protection so i download the european version uh and i download the patch i need for the particular language i'm going to be playing it in and to get around the piracy measures that are built into the european version uh and then i start playing it i'm like okay this is works i'm just gonna play for a couple hours i get to that same cutscene and it freezes again i feel there is some ye old ancient piracy protection preventing me from enjoying the game that is not otherwise available in any format and uh so i think 
personally, that is why people pirate games. I think the the piracy crisis has been relieved to the extent that games are more convenient to get than ever because physical scarcity no longer exists. But this old fucking game, I can't play. I even I even know how to steal things, and I've done a pretty good job so far, and I can't do it. So, uh, fuck it, fuck fuck society. This this yeah. is why I want to burn it all down. It's this specific video game. And now you know how your libertarian alt-right friend felt. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, not only should I be able to have this, but I, I think the the censorship about age of consent needs to go, too. It's like... <laughs> but no, after a certain point in their development cycle, I think games should just be turned over to the public domain, and it should be much shorter just because of hardware limitations than... I mean, you can always, if you want, like, more to dip into that well again, you can always release, like, a remaster or an update or something like that. But, yeah, you know, the original version of the game, you should just upload the source code to the internet and be like, anybody who wants to can play this now. Uh, well, you know, the thing that sucks is, like, theoretically, this stuff will eventually fall into the public domain. But, like, what, the, the copyright rules we have or creator's lifetime plus 75 years or something yeah, like that it's so it's ridiculous uh speaking although it does have, so without uh nobody is asking for this but since we're refusing to talk about this episode i thought i'd give a brief update i think i mentioned if not last podcast and the podcast before it uh wizards of the coast this oh story is now boy wide open now <laughs> I'm not going to go into the whole This is a different podcast this week. We're testing bonus content. We're just talking about shit we enjoy. Because, Kyle, unless you disagree, nothing remarkable in today's episode. (laughs) No, I mean, literally, it was... I'll say this just to go pivot back to the episode for a second. We'll we'll dip in every now and then while we stay with what we like. It was just so frustrating because Bob, Bob Newhart's whole thing in this episode is basically just... Someone makes wacky observation that anyone – it's basically like he's wandered. And I th- I wonder if this was always supposed – like I know he had like his own TV show, maybe two whole TV shows, I think. Uh, back I think he back. might be right. Um, and I think in all of them, like the joke was that like he's a pretty buttoned-down straight guy with a bunch of wacky neighbors. And so this was kind of, I guess, like their way of playing into that. But it's basically like Sheldon is being like, you wouldn't know this about me, but I'm obsessed with science and bad at social cues. You know, something that anyone who watches this show knows. And his Bob Newhart's entire contribution to that would be, oh, yes, I can see that upon having known you for five seconds. And that's like, yes, that's the entire A plot. It's just that. And I think the only bit of color to any of that is that Penny is on the sidelines, not able to fully appreciate, you know, you know, the others are over appreciating, but at the same time, she doesn't know this guy doesn't give a shit. And later on in the episode, he does admit that the only reason he bothered to stick around after seeing it wasn't actually a children's party is because Penny's kind of hot and he just wanted to, you know, he doesn't say that he's like, but he points out that she's a, a pretty young lady and is later like, oh, you're the only reason I'm here as long as I have been. So, anyway, Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> yeah, so Wizards of the Coast fucked up. You know, I don't, uh, you know, let's put aside do we, morality. Do we have to explain who Wizards of the Coast is or can we take that for granted? <laughs> so, Wizards of, yeah, they're the guys who own Dungeons and Dragons. And that's actually the question is, what does it mean to own Dungeons and Dragons? They also own Magic the Gathering. So they own Dungeons and Dragons, and their bosses at Hasbro were like, "We don't think we're making a lot of enough money, considering how popular this is." So they were like, "Well, so we're going to revise, basically the the. I mean, Nick, you're the legal expert. I doubt you've dived that closely into this, but you might know a little bit more." About I've, this I've followed it from a distance, is all. So right. this story is broken into the wide. So I mean, I wouldn't expect normal people to know this, but if you're even nerd adjacent, you've probably heard about this by now. But basically, since for the last twenty years, when they when Wizards of the Coast first acquired Dungeons and Dragons, they were like, "Okay, we've created a rule set. It involves basically." Dungeons and Dragons is just rolling a d20 and adding a bunch of numbers to, numbers to other numbers to see if what you wanted to do works or not. So if you want to make your own game where you roll a d20 and add a bunch of numbers to some other numbers and see if uh, see if you works any game that you make using that system, we promise not to sue you because we're all cool, man. We're friends, and that's basic. That was called the OGL, the original game license. And it was it was a huge boon to the 
role-playing game industry. It basically it would base it's basically the equivalent of a video game publisher being like, "Hey, here's the game engine that we use. Feel free to mod it however you want. We don't give a shit." Which, for all I know, may have happened with one or two game engines. I think maybe like RPG game or something like that. Probably no, because those yeah. you have to buy. So I don't. So I don't. It, know it they... did effectively like make it a public domain thing. Yeah, it it effectively, and so now twenty years later, they're actually like, um, we're gonna take backsies on that, and the the immediate response was uh, twofold. The first response was, well, that's a very shitty thing for you to do. But the second, more interesting response is, uh, actually, you know, we've had twenty years to think about this, and we're not sure that legally you own the rights to rolling a d twenty and saying add a bunch of numbers to some other numbers. So we're just going to, you know, you can, we're just going to. Fuck you. Like, A, we're going to boycott all of your stuff, and B, we're just going to proceed forward with the assumption that you don't have the legal standing to do this. And so the biggest rival to Dungeons & Dragons was like, uh, well, you know, we've uh, we've been – we've made our own basically uh, – we've had our own fan hack of Dungeons and Dragons for 20 years called Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to create an open license for Pathfinder. So anybody who wants to, who wants to uh, make their own role-playing game where you add a bunch of num- roll a D 20 and add a bunch of numbers to other numbers. You can, uh, you can say it's based on Pathfinder and not Dungeons and Dragons and the, and D and D not going to sue you. They'll have to sue us. And we're more than happy to kick their ass in that lawsuit. And it was kind of awesome. So basically overnight, uh, it looks like Wizards of the Coast both uh, – oh, and the other interesting thing that happened is people got – they underestimated just – and this is – like how do you underestimate – if there's one thing we should know about nerds by now, it's that we're incredibly sensitive and incredibly like just looking for an excuse to fight anyone for any occasion. I'm not saying that's always a good thing. but Oh, absolutely not, but it's not incorrect. It's, incredibly, <laughs> it's an incredibly toxic thing, but you would think that like – the first thing anyone on their social media team would have done was been like, well, if you do this, we're going to be, you know, people will be calling us the N-word and everything else for the next 20 years. But in addition to that, they'll also be canceling their D&D subscription. So, like, overnight, like, Dungeons & Dragons, which does have a, like, one subscription model campaign service. Uh, D&D use, Beyond. Yeah, they lost like people. So many people went online to cancel their memberships that it crashed the service, and that spooked Hasbro oh. pretty bad. Yeah. So I, I the only bit I saw about that because I think your, your your second bit of news there about the situation where they might not even legally own this process that was news to me that I was unaware of, and that's pretty cool. The D and D Beyond thing I knew about because it came up on uh, YouTube show the Jim Quisition. And you watched Jimquisition? She... Which Jimquisition? You watched Jimquisition? I mean, that's fine. I'm not judging you. I like uh, Jim Sterling. I was just I, oh, I've only reason, very recently I, within for some reason I wouldn't think that would be your vibe. That was the only thing. No, only within the last month or two. And to be totally honest, it's not 100 percent my vibe. I think she's a little abrasive and loud, but it's not like she doesn't know what she's talking about make great points and when she was covering the D beyond stuff you say the service crashed i think that's true but what was also true <laughs> is uh they i think removed the ability to unsubscribe from within yes, the app they, they, they and, took it off you know because it, yeah and, and then, and then technical difficulties yeah, and then it redirects you to the website and then they took away your ability to subscribe unsubscribe from the website and so, yeah, like, it crashed, but also they were like, we're going to just not let you do this. <laughs> so, yeah, which is blatantly probably illegal. And we'll get big panic, big so panic. Fast. But, yeah, so anyway, so they're totally backing off. But, yes, in uh, it, it's really looking like they have shot themselves in the foot over nothing. And the inter- so, again, I'm not a legal expert, but as to the they might not own the mechanics, I mean, I didn't know this was a – this is only something I've learned since following this, but apparently – you can't copyright game mechanics. That's just like a thing. Well, that's what I thought as soon as you said this process thing. Because like, so here in Montana, where I went to law school, certainly not top tier school, but actually surprisingly good. That said, we are in the woods, so we learn a lot of woods law. I took (laughs) as much intellectual property law as I could, but it weren't much. And I do remember, though... Not um, nearly as much cow-stealing law. You took a lot more... Pig stealing law. 
Some pig stealing, yeah. Which, the reason for that is that there aren't nearly as many pigs as there are cows in this state, but that makes them all the more precious. So, uh, yeah, higher value crime there. But yeah, it's, you know, and actually I'm thinking specifically of patent, but I think, you know, with copyright, like, you, you, you can copyright ideas and settings and things like that but i also remember in the it wouldn't be a patent issue but specifically from patent like you could not patent like a a a particular process like you could particularly like the way that you did this thing and the way like you came to your conclusion and like those like the materials or anything i think you could but like someone else who can figure out how to do that same thing is not barred if they did not steal like the exact same steps from you or something and so, yeah, the idea that you could roll a dice and add them together to make stats, like, that seems so generic at this point that, like, it's not a setting, it's not a theme. Like, I, I think there is a, just hearing this for the first time, it sounds like there's a decent case there to say that, yeah, they don't own that system. Yeah, no, they don't, I mean, because cause even, like, if you want to get historical about it, it's like Gary Gygax was one of the first people to like come up with the like roll a dice and add numbers thing but that's actually like that idea was like he took it from wargaming you know so it's not like yeah he owned that i like you could say that he owns i think the the better argument is that they own very specific like things like you said about the setting and maybe certain monsters right well and and to to dip into a a much much older copyright thing uh so my my role-playing that I was raised on was not these tabletop games, but through through JRPGs. And in early Final Fantasy games, there were a number of creatures that had to be renamed from the Japanese to the English version because they were already, in their sprite art, very blatantly rip-offs of creatures from D&D. <laughs> I think there was a Beholder that uh, had to be renamed a bunch, and also they definitely ripped off... Um, mind flares and that's a that's a character model that like they continue to rip off to this day i don't know how they even get away with that that yeah i think they can like but you know even then like in the D setting all those ideas are you know more or less based off of like different cultural myths and yeah exactly. so like I they're mean- that's that's like you can't say you own, you can own you can say you own the brand name Dungeons and Dragons, but you can't say you own the concept of Dungeons or Dragons because that would yeah sound, like would sound insane. Or like your version of bugbears, you I know mean, that's a thing. But... Out, they actually got into this. Like one of the earliest fights about this was between the prior, like before Wizards of the Coast owned Dungeons and Dragons. It belonged to. Uh, Gary Gygax's original company, TSR, and they mm-hmm. were sued sued by the Tolkien estate, estate, and they basically won because you know they point out it's like you know we kind of own the most famous story involving elves and dwarves and wizards and magic, and it seems like you took all of that pre verbatim for your setting. And they went to court, and the court was like, well, yeah, I mean, there's strong similarities, but uh, you know you. No, elves and dwarves and wizards and stuff is, you know, pretty common intellectual property. So it's like even even in like the basis of it, they don't have a standing. The only thing that they had, and this is exactly like what you were talking about, is they had to change the name of the little people who live in the woods who are smaller than dwarves and good at like sneaking and stealing things from hobbits to halflings. And that was like, it's like as long as you don't call them hobbits, they can be in whatever you want. Yeah, that, I mean, I wasn't familiar with that lawsuit, but everything you're describing makes total sense to me. That, yeah, like, the idea of an elf is so old that, yeah, you know, you may have your specific interpretation of an elf, but if you were to go to anyone else and say, hey, I invented elves, I'd be like, no, like, this is, this is not, and you know what, if, if in some sort of bizarre world, we had an ancient and strong tradition of copyright throughout the ages, um, you know, shit eventually falls into the public domain anyway. <laughs> like that's so, yeah. so long story short, it, it would appear the funny, the funny thing is that Dungeons and Dragons thought that they, they owned a, this huge sprawling system. And what they actually had was what they, what they were really exploiting all this time was just a lot of goodwill from the fans who sort of, 
associated them as like the ambassador and flag- flagship product of the system, and now they have pissed everyone off and don't have that anymore and may never have it again. Well, yeah, and it's it's frustrating to me. Like, yeah, I I'm not even you know obviously like a, a huge D and D guy, but from being around people my entire life who are, I you know the the way that like when magic came out and you hear about how exploitative it is uh, financially, and I'm not saying in a way that like you know modern service games or whatever like are really feeding on your gambling addiction or anything like that but you know just that yeah it's you're selling pieces of paper that because of arbitrary rarity have this intensely high value so it's like oh i really enjoy this fun game but i know that there's a significant degree to which it's being it's taking advantage of us but like that same vibe never seemed to exist with D. it always kind of felt like oh you know every now and then they will release this new gigantic like 80 or 100 dollar book and that's the book i will need for like the next 10 years <laughs> and there will be supplements to that but like we're happy to have that book and you want to know what probably ain't no one going to get in trouble if we print off a whole bunch of pdfs of that book that's going to be fine too and then dnd like as it modernizes they they don't like draw back on that stuff, but D and things like D and D Beyond become more popular, and more people are into it, and that just wasn't good enough. Like, yeah. like what's your like? You guys did it. You made the transition, and everyone was happy. And it's like, oh, fucking no, yeah, you're, no you're when you're up, when no when you have a good thing. Yeah, you were about to have this, like, movie come out that all of these people were going to see just out of loyalty to your product, uh, even though who knows if it's going to be any good, and now people are talking about And I admit, this is another example of, like I said, sometimes fans take things a little extreme, but, like, you know, now... You know, half the people who, like, half the people who are going to go see that movie are not going to go see that movie because they're mad at you. It's just such a bizarre move. And, you know, it's... Unfortunately, you know, we whined about this whenever we did last whine about it, that, you know, it's becoming the norm that more and more game or really anything companies are trying to move towards live service things. But I don't know. It's maybe that hopefully this is like, I I doubt it will be, but it'd be really nice if this were a point of reflection for other companies to be like, all right, maybe... (laughs) Maybe we can be a bit too brazen with how we're trying to squeeze money out of people. Maybe there is a line somewhere. Uh, It's the one good... I mean, there was a line in this community because this community had thrived for years in sort of an open ecosystem and you could see all the benefits from it. So it's one of those... It's like the classic example of... uh, uh, not you know, and actually, I feel like we're we're kind of seeing this. We see this politically too. Is is you know, you you give people shit, and sometimes they're not very appreciative of the shit that you give them. Uh, and you fi- figure out new ways to exploit people, and sometimes they you know don't complain as much as they could, or sometimes they become absolute bootlickers, and it's awful. But if you if someone all if something if you've already given people something and then you try to take that away from them, you know after they just started to take it for granted that that was like something that belong to them intrinsically, they get really mad about it. And there's a pretty mm-hmm. immediate backlash and pu- and pushback about it. I, I hate to have to do it, but you did just make me think of a pretty good Louis C.K. bit. <laughs> so, so here, big parentheses, unrepentant piece of shit, Louis C.K. He did have this short bit about being on an airplane with somebody and learning that the airplane has wi-fi and then 30 seconds later learning that the airplane's wi-fi was down and how the guy next to him became so immediately frustrated and angry he's like this is both like we should be able to use this i can't believe it i wasn't even using it but we shouldn't be able to and yeah it's just it's like exactly what you're saying that you know it's not something that you are ever entitled to it's not something that you necessarily need and yeah, like to an extent that even the company itself was trading in in actual goodwill by just not exploiting its its fan base to the, the full extent it could. 
but at the same time, yeah, you 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 draw a little bit of that back, and it's like, oh, <laughs> like, this is a lifetime of expectation at this point. <laughs> I, yeah. All right. In this episode of the Big Bang Theory, um, keep going. I thought it was weird. Like they try to do this weird, like, and I couldn't figure out. Like, are they trying to actually make this argument? Like, there was a weird the reverence around Bob Newhart. I don't want to shit on Bob Newhart. I just want to be like, uh, they basically in this episode the weirdest thing about it to me is they treat him like some sort of sacred figure, and I couldn't figure out like. Well, here's do you what I'm mean saying. the audience or do you mean the characters? The characters, and I just wonder if it's like, so basically, um, at the end of the, ep- not at the very end, but as part of the episode, when Bob Newhart's character is like, I actually don't feel like anything in my life has amounted to much, which is a pretty normal way to feel. They do that sure. thing, which I always hate, but is like almost required in television shows where there's like an older character where they're like, no, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you. Which reminds me, I'm now, so when we pivot away from this i'll tell you about my best version of this type of thing so in the episode it's sheldon telling professor proton i would not have become a physicist if it wasn't for you and leonard goes like yeah i mean think about how many people are making important scientific discoveries because you got them interested in science and that's cute and fine and whatever but the fact that they're saying it to this famous comedian made me wonder is like is the whole point of this the writers like it felt like the writers trying to tell i don't know if this is true but my my suspicion is that it was the writers trying to tell bob newhart like the whole reason we got into comedy is because of you and how funny you are which on the outside is kind of cute and reverent but on the inside if i were bob newhart i would not want the big bang theory blamed on me that way my response would be like no 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 i made good comedy don't pin this shit on me well because i didn't even recognize bob newhart and had to look him up after the episode, I did not even think about this interpretation that you're putting forward. But now that you've said it, I uh, am see right. I'm inclined to believe it. Not not just because I think you've made a good case, but because it explains how like Bob Newhart wasn't necessarily acting through the entire episode when like he already looked pretty tired. And I think you know in a in effectively comedic way. But yeah, if he was genuinely the entire time thinking, this is what it's all led to, huh? This is <laughs> this this material that I'm being for. This this drivel that is coming out of me at the end of my life, so another check can go to my children, <laughs> is what my is what my own career has inspired. <laughs> like that's that's like Ozymandias being crushed by his own decaying statue. It's. <laughs> yes. uh, it's yeah that's actually the whole episode like basically the episode is what it's actually about which is them dragging some poor tired old man in and offering him money just so that they can barrage him with hey hey can you do that bit that we liked when we were kids we don't care that you're tired of it Kyle I'm starting to turn around and think this may have been a secretly good episode <laughs> this is <laughs> you know if the silly me for for kind of like letting it just glance off my brain but when you really when you're when you when you're brave and look directly at it you can see what's really going on and oh i just so there's actually a good so one of my favorite episodes of batman the animated series which is the iconic batman cartoon show from the 90s that is by most by most accounts never been surpassed in as an american animated series one of the best episodes is i think called beware the gray ghost um and it's about batman teaming up with an actor who played a Batman-like character on a TV show when he was a kid. And so the two of them... And it really... It's, it's like I said, as completely a different genre of television, it's almost this exact same shtick. It's, there's this washed-up old actor. He's broke. He's, you know, he's, he's... He feels trapped by his legacy, which is all anybody wants from him, is to put on this dumb costume and you know go to conventions and things but he can't get any real acting gigs and he's never been taken seriously and you know but someone is you know blowing stuff up using gimmicks from old 
gray ghost episode so batman is like well you would know something about this so he puts on the stupid outfit and they have to solve a crime together and it's it's poignant in the episode because in the episode batman does like that one of you know because this is a warmer batman than he is in any of the movies or the comics by just a little bit and he tells he tells you know the gray ghost at one point you know uh this is going to sound weird, but the whole reason I became Batman is because I was, you know, I was such a fan of yours. The gray ghost was my hero. And then at the end of the episode, Bruce Wayne is in line to get an autograph from him. And, uh, and he tells him, you know, it's true. The gray ghost was my hero. And you know, he kind of still is. And they walks away and it's poignant, but it's doubly poignant for the fact that in that episode, the person who voices the actor, the old actor who used to be this Batman like character is Adam West. Oh, so right. So it's Adam West and Kevin Conroy. Oh, and I guess, Kevin you know, Conroy. it's probably also obvious, but yeah, Adam West, the 60s Batman, the wacky campy Batman for anyone who isn't, you know, over 25 or whatever. Yeah. Adam West turning in this really sort of beautiful and nuanced vocal performance is this guy who's sort of sick of being this character, you know, teaming up with Kevin Conroy and, you know, ha- going on this adventure and it's beautiful and i feel like this episode was trying to accomplish sort of a similar vibe but it it a it would ne- it's hard to get that to work as well in the context of comedy generally and i feel like a show like the big bang theory was just never going to pull that off you know uh kyle you have inspired in me a recommendation that i had i was not prepared to make before the episode started and i feel like unless we want to talk any more about this episode that we have both very, very openly acknowledged was not very interesting. I think I'm ready to move on to our, our favorite thing. Let's move on. You okay. first. Yeah, I'm going to take advantage because so I worry that this is a re-recommend and that I may have even recommended either of these movies. I'm going to recommend both of them um, within the last few months when I when I rewatch them. But I did rewatch these for the first time in probably like 15 years. And so I'm going to recommend both of the Fright Night movies. Well, I say both. There are technically three of them, you, so that... You have not recommended this, I don't think, but I'm interested oh. to hear about it. Okay, yeah. So, there are technically three Fight Fright Night movies, but one... Well, maybe even four now. But, they, you know, there's two remakes. They're fine. They're 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 just fine. I don't recommend them. I don't say they're awful or anything, but they're, they're, there's no, no, no purpose for them. The first two um, came out in the mid to late 80s, and what made me think about them is the situation that... Kyle's is describing with the Grey Ghost episode is uh, Fright Night is about a a teen boy and his girlfriend who are played by thirty year old actors and you know they uh, are dating they're not quite getting super sexual with each other yet classic kind of teen problems that are bizarre because they do look so much older than high schoolers and. Right at the beginning of the uh, the movie, there our main character, his name is Charlie Brewster, notices uh, a new neighbor in the weird, old, spooky house, and sees pretty clearly early on that that neighbor is in fact a vampire and is murdering women. But you know, this isn't a world where va- it's it's supposed to be very much the real world. People don't believe in vampires, and so he goes to the only resource that he thinks would be helpful the late night horror host uh, of the local cable access show who himself in like the 50s and 60s was a a star actor in a bunch of cheap horror films where he played primarily a vampire slayer charlie brewster goes to him for help and much as the uh the adam west or the professor proton (laughs) he is over the hill no one is interested in the old movies or his cable access show. And so he is actually, I think he is being canceled as the movie begins. But little Charlie Brewster is like, oh boy, you're the only person who would ever believe me. And he's like, I don't believe you. I'm an actor. Like, yeah, I know a lot about vampires because I was in a lot of vampire movies. But as the evidence becomes clearer and clearer, it's more about Charlie Brewster trying to convince this person that Yes, I know that you did this fake stuff, but this guy is real, and I still need your knowledge and advice. And it's great. It's not 
necessarily a comedy, but it is funny just in, and not even like in a metatextual way, just in the sense that it's, it's played very straight. The, the vampire played by uh, Chris Sarandon, who I really only, the only other no, role that I, I know for sure of his that easily comes to mind is in the, he is in the princess bride as the snobby looking prince, whatever. Uh, but he is an incredibly charming, handsome uh, man. And so no one takes seriously that he's any sort of threat or danger. Everyone just kind of loves him and thinks Charlie is, is wacky and over the top. And uh, also, it's a surprisingly horny movie. It's not like, you know, in any way, like, obscene or, like, intensely erotic or anything like that. But uh, the, the, the Chris Sarandon as the vampire does have that that mythical, haunted person, intense sexual charisma uh, that, that is manifested as an actual power. So that's a lot of fun. Um the second movie, I I well, don't think is. Well, you didn't say the other. You didn't say who plays the monster hunter, the old oh. TV show host. I think that's why you were bringing all this up. Well, no, I wasn't bringing up who actually plays the monster hunter uh, to to do I, that. I was just bringing it up because that's from the from the actual. Um, but you you do now that you mention it. Yeah, we do have to talk about who it is if we want to fully establish the theme, and it is Roddy McDowell playing Peter Vincent. And so I can't say that Rod McDowell is an old vampire hunter or anything. It doesn't exactly have that exact same thing. But just the the old man trying to forget about the career that has inspired the youth who takes it very seriously is as far as the connection goes oh, there. It was, that's right. It was right. Sorry, in my head it was Vincent Price. Cause he, oh, his name is, yeah. His na- that would have been a better choice. His name is a is an homage to Vincent Price. So in my it, brain, it absolutely is, yes. He's supposed to be playing... Like, it's Roddy McDowell pretending to be Vincent Price in a movie. In, in a perfect so, world, and, it would have been Vincent Price, absolutely. And so in my brain, it turned into Vincent Price. That's why I was confused about that. Anyway. Yeah. Um, would have been better. You're right. Uh, alas, not the case. And um, the second one I'm going to talk about really quickly uh, because the premise is very, very similar. Except it's it's much sillier now because Charlie's gone off to college and God, what what are the odds? Another freaking vampire shows up. Um, except this time around, he, having had his vampire experience, is like, I know what vampires are. We got rid of the vampire. Like, I'm over it. Things are okay. And uh, the vampire hunter is back. And he's like, yeah, no, I don't think we did a good enough job. And that there's more vampire danger. And I can't believe that you're not taking me seriously this time. Um, but the reason it's more noteworthy, and I learned this very recently, is so, like, I used to see it, um, Fright Night 2 on cable occasionally, like on USA, but I don't know if I ever talked about this, but there was this long-running, like, weekend late-night program called Up All Night, where it was really, uh, they just had, you know, it, it was someone introducing movies, and it was kind of funny, but they played, like, a lot of garbage. And so if you want to see a, a sort of smutty vampire movie that's heavily censored on a Friday night... That's what Up All Night was all about. And so that was really the only way I ever had access to Fright Night 2. And I learned that the reason Fright Night 2 was never really entered into massive production and as big of a release as the first one is because the producer, uh, I can't remember his actual name, I could look it up, but I'm not going to, is one of the victims in the early 90s uh, super big national coverage Menendez brother murders. <laughs> yeah, he was the father of the Menendez brothers. And so Fright Night 2 was being produced and released about the time that that happened. And so it had a little bit of a dent on their release. <laughs> um, just an interesting, bizarre factoid I learned like a month ago. <laughs> but yeah, um, aside from that, they are both super fun movies. Uh, the second one is a lot dumber than the first one, but still like a good time. So, Fright Night and Fright Night Two, the OGs, I recommend. So Kyle. I want to. Uh, well, I just want to say, and so uh, I will. I will add to that that the. So I've never seen the original Fright Night, so I can't comment on it. So I don't want to compare it better or worse. But I I thought the remake of Fright Night the was quite good. 
um, just a couple. Uh, the review I saw by someone who was a big fan of the original pointed out that it's one, it was one of the first times that someone had remade one of these movies, and the modern version actually like felt modern. Uh, that is true. Is, which is basically just to say that like it 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 doesn't change the plot hardly at all, but it just makes little tweaks to the characters that that don't feel so that they don't feel like they're characters who are behaving in a way that you know characters in the early 2000s would have behaved as opposed to characters in the 80s like they have cell phones and they do internet research and you know they're teenagers in the way that kids in the early 2000s are stereotypical teenagers as opposed to teenagers in the 80s and so all of those things were considered pretty uh you know just a if nothing monumental just most reboots suck at doing that part so it was like hey well done for reboot for like remaking this movie and not fucking that part up and then like you said uh the vampire so oh yes Uh, that's i I was gonna say like i don't know about the rest of the movie but colin farrell ooh, (laughs) colin farrell is a brilliant just like what you were saying all of the stuff that you were saying about the guy who plays the vampire in the original it's like he is simultaneously super sexy and super charismatic and super menacing so you like very much believe that like a it's like it's totally believable that he's like a murderer and also when you find out that he's like a murdering vampire you're kind of like oh man yeah. <laughs> i really i would like this guy i did i wanted him to date my mom i didn't want him to like and there's a great scene where like they're following him to figure out if he's a vampire and like the girl is following him and he suddenly appears like in the in like not i don't think the back seat but like the passenger seat of her car and he just gives her like without like being super menacing he just gives her like a little you know you shouldn't be following me around you could get hurt speech that is like one of the most bone chilling like casually like uh menacing like alfred hitchcock worthy speeches of like i had ever seen anybody do he's so good and then the monster hunter sort of in keeping with the casting was david tennant that didn't work as well uh, but it is sort of fun to watch Doctor Who fight Colin Farrell for like half a second. Um, yeah, well, I, I think he like is perfectly good in the role. I think just the character they made for him isn't great. Like, because, you know, you say it was modernized. And the thing I thought most of was how, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have the late night TV horror host anymore. And right. so that he... was the problem that they had is that wasn't really a niche that they could slet him into. So they made him like a weird, like tr- stage magician. Yeah. He's like a Chris angel kind of type and like, he's fun, but I, yeah, to, to have him be more vampire centric somehow other than, you know, being generally goth. And, you know, I think it's kind of a offensive stereotype, quite frankly, to believe that all goths just know about vampires. Come on, grow up. But yeah, it was fun. But yeah, I, I, I should rewatch it just for Colin Farrell. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, so my re- it's in keeping with the theme of updated nostalgia going in a slightly different direction. But I strongly recommend a movie that uh, I don't know how you're supposed to watch legally yet. So, uh, fun fact. It's uh, not Skin of Marink, is it? <laughs> no. Okay. Am, have you seen that? Because I want to know. No, I hear that. it's great. but I really want to see that. But it's not. Uh, yeah, it's no good way to watch it yet. No. I watched a movie called Shin Ultraman, which is, which is uh, the – so I think I – so a couple months back – my recommendation was Shin Godzilla. So the a couple of uh, this new uh, studio helmed by Hideaki Anno, who is the famous creator of Neon Genesis Evangelion, and like one of his best friends, who's a longtime kaiju Godzilla film like coordinator and director, but he'd never directed his own uh, Godzilla movie, collaborated to make a a Godzilla reboot in Japan called Shin Godzilla and it was fantastic and I talked about all the reasons why it was fantastic mm-hmm. at the time. This would be one of, it would be nice if I could go back and name the episode number but of course we're not that organized. Sorry guys. No, no, no. Um, not even close. But anyway, so they have now done a similar thing. In fact, they have announced plans that basically they're doing this with three properties and this is the middle of those three properties that they are doing a uh, a thematic modern day reboot of and it is a reboot of the Ultraman series called Shin Ultraman. So Ultraman 
if you don't know, because I didn't know. I mean, I found out about Ultraman very recently, but mostly in preparation for watching this movie. And mm-hmm. because there's recently been uh, some comics and stuff that finally made their way yeah. to the U.S. But I'm, I'm so vaguely familiar with them is all I can yes. say. The short version, I mean, it's an incredibly simple premise. It's Ultraman is a dude who turns into a giant shiny metal robot dude not even robot robots not fair just a giant a giant shiny vaguely metallic looking dude who punches kaiju you know so think of instead of the megazord versus monster scenes in power rangers it's just like a big dude with like uh you know sort of a an interesting looking costume just wrestling monsters and that's that's basically the whole the whole vibe of Ultraman. It's been in a, it was made by many of the same people. So the connection to Godzilla is um, the dude who created the monster suit and did a lot of the directorial or the choreography and production work on Godzilla. Like was like, well, I'd like to keep you know. I now have all of these like monster costumes and this expertise for how to shoot these scenes where these giant monsters wrestle around. Uh, but they don't make that many Godzilla movies. And I don't actually own the rights to Godzilla. But what if I made a TV show uh, about a bunch of people who fight Godzilla-like monsters? And the original version of that was actually a slightly more serious, like sort of X-Files-style show, which is about um, a, a group of scientists who are investigating kaiju-style mysteries and have to deduce their weaknesses and defeat them. And then they were like, well, this is actually hard to write. So they were like, well, what if we? What if it's just a similar vibe, but at the end, instead of having to deduce the kaiju-specific weakness, one of the characters just turns into a giant dude and punches him instead. Uh, and that was the birth of Ultraman. And it, uh, and again hugely popular in japan like easily one of the most popular and recognizable franchises in japan ever never made that big a wave in the united states uh when i was a kid i mostly knew ultraman as the inspiration for a bit on an episode of south park where barbara streisand is mechagodzilla and i can't even remember which other character reveals they have the ability to turn into a giant ultraman style person and fight mechagodzilla uh, and then Robert Smith of The Cure turns into a giant Mothman, which is also a pretty good bit. Uh, nice. So I didn't know that much about Ultraman until very recently, but there have been some crossovers and stuff. And I was very excited about this movie, mostly because uh, I really liked Shin Godzilla. So, again, the plot of this movie, uh, and this is mostly what I wanted to talk about, is the difference between the approach that this film takes and the sort of these these reboot superhero movies that America that we make here in America because this movie changes very little practically nothing about the basic premise either the premise or the character of Ultraman so again in a world where kaiju style monsters have started waking up around not kaiju style where kaiju monsters have started waking <laughs> up uh like like uh, I meant to say Godzilla-style monsters have started waking up and, you know, attacking from beneath the earth. Uh, humanity is, you know, trying to investigate and find weapons to fight them, but, it, you know, we're, we're not having much luck. And an alien from outer space arrives on Earth to help fight the monsters, and he bonds with a human uh, who then gains the ability to turn into this giant alien Ultraman uh, for three minutes at a time, just enough time to beat these monsters after he has sort of like deduced their weaknesses and such. The plot of this movie changes nothing about that basic premise, either like tonally or emotionally or aesthetically. And that's actually pretty bold when you think about it, because this is, you know, if you look at Ultraman, he's just a giant. Uh, dude in sort of a silvery red blue costume and he looks it all and fr- and he looks kind of goofy the monsters he fights look depending on your tolerance look a little goofy and they're just like no we're not we're not going to we're neither going to move away from that look nor are we going to uh, make fun of it we're just going to acknowledge that uh it looks i know weird and strange and alien and so we're just going to go with that Thanks. and i feel like so i guess um well, I should say a little bit more about like how the movie functions. So the main difference that it makes is I assume I, – I'm actually – because I've never watched the original 
Ultraman TV show. But I assume in the original TV show, you mostly focus on these adventures and these monster fights from the perspective of the main character, the main guy who can turn into Ultraman. The thing that the movie does differently is it still, it assumes that basically you're familiar with that whole backstory and it does eventually reveal most of it to you. But instead of focusing on it from his perspective, it focuses on it from the perspective of the team of scientists and experts around him who are slowly trying to figure out what the fuck is going on and what his whole deal is. So you are originally introduced to this group that has been formed to investigate these kaiju attacks and has already had some uh, success in repulsing them. And then one of the, one of these characters, you know, discovers that he can turn into Ultraman, uh, but he doesn't disclose that to the rest of them right away. He just starts acting a little weird, but he's always been kind of a weird guy, so no one comments on it. So, of course, if you're in the audience and you are familiar at all with the story, you already know, like, what his whole deal is. But in the context of the movie, you're basically watching this group of incredibly professional scientists and intelligence experts and, uh, you know, bureaucrats, like, trying to wrangle with the political and scientific explanations of, okay, first it was weird because it turned out that there were giant creatures who lived under the earth who can shoot energy beams out of their mouths. Uh, That was a lot to handle and figure out how to process. And now it turns out that in addition to that, there's a weird giant silver man who can shoot lasers out of his hands and knows judo, who is judo throwing these monsters around in the woods. Uh, I mean, he seems to be on our side, but we can't really communicate with him, so we don't know. We do know that in order for him to, uh, like, be able to do the things that he can do, he must, and, like, we've taken him, he must weigh, like, 60,000 pounds, so for him to be able to fly and shoot energy, he must have access to, like, you know, an energy force that's so far beyond our understanding that's essentially magic, and so we're basically looking at... uh, I, and like there's a little, it's great because they're like I know that this looks like some sort of children's cartoon show but for any of this to be functioning the way it obviously is to our eyes we are looking at technology that is so far beyond human comprehension and our current scientific understanding that it makes us look like ants like these people are warping gravity they're warping thermodynamics they're ignoring basic Newtonian physics these people are gods and we are just here to try to understand what that means. And, you know, and, you know, and they tease out both like the scientific uh, implications of that, which I've talked about. But they also spend a lot of time on like, what are the political implications of this? Like, you know, we're because it's interesting. I feel like if this were an American movie, the assumption of like there would be a lot about how the American military, you know, deals with this and stuff. But it's funny. Yeah, it is it's the just, daddy force of the world. <laughs> right. And that's still sort of, but it's like, they're like, we're Japan. (laughs) Like, there's a great bit at the beginning where they're trying to drop bombs on on, uh, one of these monsters. And, like, there's just a throwaway line. It's like, man, that was all the bombs we had to drop on this monster. We're going to have to lease more from the United States. And that fucking blows because they charge us an arm and a leg for every one of these fucking kaiju bombs that we have to buy from them. It really sucks. (laughs) Uh, So it's just like, it's just like. We're just this little island nation that's not allowed to have our own offensive military, but now we're, like, home to, like, an interdimensional showdown of gods. And, you know, it would sure would be nice if we could get some of this technology for ourselves and maybe use it to turn ourselves into a world superpower or something. But, you know, anything that we do is going to have the U.S. and China breathing down our necks. So we got to be real careful about this. We can't offend anybody because they could nuke us off the face of the earth. And it's just, like, a whole other... So you have basically this uh this this children's tv show turned into a movie where the where the dominant uh lens that it's being examined through feels like something that's like a cross between like the x-files and or fringe and the west wing which is just like sort of nice to see how that works out but the fundamental underpinnings of the story haven't changed at all it's just like we're going to consider this like all of the real scientific and uh political ramifications of this and i like that i find it i found it so refreshing and interesting because and this was why like i where i wanted to bring this back around it's i feel like the curse of modern cinematic adaptions of children's and uh, nerd property in the United States is that we basically 
can't deal with the fact that these things were created for children and we want them to be taken seriously. And so our efforts to make them be taken seriously involve, like I said, involve either having to update the aesthetics or update the emotional tone of the story into something that can be taken seriously or else we just give up and we just get real tongue in cheek about it, which is like the death, which is slowly like causing the entire Marvel cinematic universe to disappear inside its own asshole. So those are like, those are basically the two paths we have found in the United States is you can either be like, yeah, they're basically comic book characters who dress in primary colors. Isn't that? And then one of the characters will say in the movie, isn't it weird that we all just like, color coordinate in primary colors whose idea was that was that your idea iron man waka waka and you're just like i want to gouge out one of my eyeballs right now or else i mean it was fine like the first couple of times but when it becomes like a non-stop chorus of how the characters comment on their own stuff you're yeah just like yeah. i hate this and i'm tired of it um or we do the batman thing which is you know oh he can't wear it his costume can't have any color and it has to be black and it has to look functional and it has to look vaguely like you know a motorcycle helmet and goggles or something like or modern kevlar body armor and then we have to like you know we have to make sure that you understand that he's angsty and driven by demons and uh we have to focus on uh, or, you know, even worse in Man of Steel, we have to focus on his inculcate rage at being this powerful person in this world of, you know, we're of the U.S. military and all of that. And it just, you know, as it bums you out and it creates this uh, this mood that is so serious and so self-serious and so sort of angsty and pretentious that it, you know, it also makes you want to roll your eyes and feels like it's not... And it feels like it's drifted so far away from like the core themes and and aesthetics of the original stories that you're like, what even this doesn't even feel like the same character anymore. And so I hate both of those things. (laughs) And so it was nice to see a third approach uh, from the these Japanese filmmakers, um, which was just like, we're not going to do either one of those things. Instead, we're just going to be like, no. The character looks like this and he operates like this and he has this moral code and none of that is going to change. And instead, we are just going to treat the whole thing with the kind of sociological and political and military implications that we think would be appropriate to, you know, people dealing with this stuff in the real world. So it's simultaneously it creates this like, uh, you know, um it's just a great vibe. It's like, I'm not saying the movie is perfect by any means. It has, you know, uh, you know, it tries to condense a lot of story into like a, an hour, 30 minute movie. And I assume a lot of that would be easier to follow if I had watched this 40 year old TV show or any of the sequels to it, but I haven't. So I was just, there are places where I like, they're throwing a lot at me and just expecting me to keep up just sort of fun and refresh. It feels like almost like the best, sort of movie that you never saw on mystery science theater, but obviously belongs on mystery science theater 3000. Uh, okay. Cause there's like, you know, it has that whole vibe and aesthetic to it, but then it's taken seriously. So there's like a bit in like the middle of the movie where it's like, Oh, this, this woman has gone missing and she suddenly shows up walking down the street and she's like 90 feet tall. Uh, <laughs> and she's been hypnotized by the bad guys who have turned her into a 90 foot tall monster to sort of showcase like how their technology works. And on the one hand, it's really silly, right? It's just a giant. It's like a 50 foot tall woman just walking around downtown Tokyo in a, you know, in a pantsuit. But on the other hand, you have like this consideration of like, well, if the aliens really could do this, then uh, then we could militarize this technology if we could if they would be willing to trade this to us we could militarize this technology to become like the predominant military force on the planet uh but oh if we can do that that must maybe that's what they want us for is it possible that human beings are just you know that the whole reason all these aliens are suddenly turning up here is because they see us as a consumable resource to be churned up as like a military uh resource that they can use like and unleash us on the rest of the galaxy is that all is that like our destiny to just be the slaves of alien races with godlike technology um 
And then Ultraman is, of course, like, no, I won't allow it because I think that human beings should fundamentally be able to determine their own destiny. And yes, I realize that they have kind of been fucking that up for as long as they've been around, but I still think they they can be better if we give them the chance. And so as long as I'm around, nobody's going to be turning any women into 50-foot-tall weapons of mass destruction on my watch. It's like, Which is my is, first anti-Ultraman policy is this <laughs> no giant women thing. <laughs> it's just it's just good and it's fun. So anyway, this movie came out in Japan last last year. It was out in theaters. It's been officially subbed and it and dubbed and it was here in the United States for like half a minute. And then presumably at some point it will get an official release here. I just don't know when or on what streaming service. So if you want to watch it legally, you're just going to have to be a little patient. Or if you want, you know, back to the beginning of this episode, if you want to watch it now, it is kind of on the Internet anytime you want to go find it. So that would be Shin Ultraman, the which uh, I liked a lot. I thought was very good. I've liked Shin Godzilla and Shin Ultraman, and I'm looking forward to the third in the cycle of serious but not gritty reboots which is going to be shin common rider the reboot of the story of the guy who turns into a uh a, a bug cool motorcycle and rides, thing. Around, and rides around on a cool motorcycle fighting monsters well and um while we wait for shin common Rider, i just want to double check a lot of ultraman talk actual name is shin ultraman though is that right yes okay cool which i don't you know, even know. So, what does shin mean in I think it means true or like real because like I know um, mostly from fighting games, you know, you've got characters like Akuma and then you've got Shin Akuma. So it's like the the, the true demon. Um, Yeah, I think it it can either mean true or it can mean new according to Wikipedia. So it probably and obviously it has a probably has a little bit of all of that. But yeah, so basically this is sort of like, yeah, this is the real deal Ultraman. You know, I feel like with how much we just talked about the nerd shit we like and how little we focused on the episode, maybe this is the first episode in our series of Shin Big Bang Theory Theory. (laughs) Yes, please make that the title of this episode. That is what it is. And you know what? It may be the title that precedes all episodes here for (laughs) us. Thank you all for supporting us and entering the the Shin BBTT era. (laughs) 